mother tell me how it was when you were young Was the world so very old when your life had just begun Oh, grandfather, tell me, is it true you worked the land And the tools that you used you made with your own hands Before time was only money and machines made man a slave Was the world all milk and honey before all the streets were paved Grandson, I'll tell you truly how it was when I was young The world was full of wonder in my first days under the sun Before time was only money and machines made man a slave The world was milk and honey before all the streets were paved Good afternoon. This is Katie and Kay, and you're listening to Living Permaculture, Katie and Kay's source for information on how to live a more sustainable life. I'm Kathleen. I'm engineering the show. On the call is Jerome Ostentowski of Central Rocky Mountain Permaculture Institute in Basalt. And we've welcomed Greg Peterson back onto the airwaves, who joined us as well last month, calling in from Phoenix. For over 30 years, he's been working on one of Phoenix's first environmental showcase homes for urban farming. This one-third acre yard features a primarily edible landscape with over 50 fruit trees, rainwater and graywater harvesting, solar applications, and extensive use of reclaimed and recycled building materials. He introduced us to his urban farm on our last episode, but we're going to dive a little bit deeper into what he grows there and what the evolution of that place has looked like. So, Greg, can you tell us about where it all started? Oh, absolutely. So <laughs> last month, we talked about really the first half of my life, <laughs> from the time I was born until the time I was 30. And a lot of what's happened here at the urban farm has happened since 2001, when I turned 40. Uh, I was in school again. I went back to college late in life. And had to write a, again, a mission and vision for my life. And what came out of that, after having lived here at the urban farm for 12 years, I wrote a paper on what the urban farm was, is to become. And uh, it's an environmental showcase home, inside and out. It's a third of an acre. There's about 80 fruit trees on the property. I use hedgerows a lot with the fruit trees. So when you walk up my driveway, and look what's in the front yard, you see this big, vast open space. And I often will tell people in tours, there are 40 fruit trees in the front yard. And they look around like, wow, where are they? Wow. They're in hedgerows down the north side, down the south side, and across the east side are hedgerows of apples and citrus that provide, uh, in permaculture, we like to call it stacking functions. So we have an asset, and in this case, it's a tree that does multiple things for us. So my citrus hedgerow that is between the street and my front yard is provides food in the winter, lots of citrus. It provides uh, a nice smell this time of year 
it's blooming. It provides a nice legal fence between me and the street for privacy. And so that's, that's a big component of the front yard here at the urban farm is somewhere around 40 fruit trees that provide food for me about eight months a year. Wow. Then the rest of the front yard uh, is uh, a food forest that's basically come to be over the past 30 years. And one of the key components of this food forest is open pollinated seeds. And I know you've had guests on the show in the past talking about seeds and uh, the difference between hybrid and open pollinated the open pollinated seeds are, uh, they're also called land races or heirloom seeds. They're, they breed true. So the key piece for me in my landscape is that I plant open pollinated seeds. I let plants flower, make fruit, go to seed, so that those seeds automatically spread throughout my front landscape. So right in the middle of the front yard, I have cilantro, parsley, basil, oregano, nasturtiums, I, think I don't think I said celery, kale, beans that all come back year after year after year. And all I'm doing is I'm nurturing the soil. I'm adding, um, you know, organic matter on top. And most of the time these days, the organic matter that I'm adding to the top are green mulches or leftover bean plants that go through their entire life. And then when they die, I just leave them in place so that they break down, just like it would happen in a forest. That's why we, uh, you know, talk about forest gardening or creating a food forest where we actually let nature handle what's happening in the space, then what happens for me is I just go harvest food, which is really cool. And I'm willing to bet you probably see a little more bird activity and pollinator activity and maybe other types of wildlife um, coming through your property than many of your neighbors since you're right in Phoenix. (laughs) Huge difference in the amount of that. In fact, it's very interesting. The house just in the north of me, they basically have lawn. Their biodiversity in their yard is Bermuda grass. And I've often wanted to figure out how to do a biodiversity survey of what is growing in my yard as opposed to what's growing in my neighbor's yards. And, you know, I would bet that just in the plant arena, there are 300 different kinds of plants growing in my yard. Wow. And I bet your, yeah. um, your neighbors are certainly benefiting from having those uh, trees and birds nearby, too, even though they're not in their own yard. <laughs> right. Oh, my gosh. You, you say that. That's, you know, what's really interesting. About three months ago, last fall, I uh, was walking uh, down my street. And the house across the street from me, I found a lettuce plant. Oh, that's another thing that grows wild in my yard is lettuce. I found a lettuce plant growing in their lawn across the street. (laughs) So there's that benefit, too. The seeds are, you know, landing elsewhere. 
Right. How many fruit trees did you say you have? About 80 fruit trees on the property. Wow. And I think, you know, there's, and I'm sure Jerome could speak to this too, a beauty about being on one property for so long that you can stick around to watch trees become full-sized and bear fruit. So could you talk a little bit about just sort of the path of evolution in your space and sort of where you started and, and how you got to where you are now? Wow, that's a great question. And going back to a moment ago, I have actually planted fruit trees, walked with those fruit trees through their entire life cycle of their growth cycle, their production cycle, and their death cycle in 32 years here at the urban farm. It's, it's given me a lot of data to be able to teach. I teach people how to grow fruit trees in the desert. And it's given me a lot of data on life cycles and light longevity of trees. So that's been really, a really cool thing for me, you know, having lived here on the same property for 32 years. So where I started. So when I moved onto the property, there was about 70 trees on the property. There were four fruit trees hmm. mm-hmm. 32 years ago. Now it's just the other way around. I have four non-fruit trees <laughs> and the rest are fruit trees. So there's been, there's been a transition from uh, growing things. And it, it's never made sense to me why anybody would plant anything that you couldn't eat or that didn't support your landscape. So when I say didn't support your landscape, uh, I have a big ash tree in my backyard that was here 32 years ago when I moved here. And it dumps bushels of leaves every fall. That's my mulch. So I grab onto that. So it's never made sense to me why you wouldn't plant something you, you can't eat or doesn't, you know, that supports your landscape. So over the past 32 years, I've transitioned from non-edibles to most everything that's on the property is now edible or it supports edible. One of the very interesting things that, that I've watched happen here at the urban farm is the evolution of the soil. Now, mm-hmm. The reason that there's fruit trees that grow well in, on this property is this, in the 1910s and 1920s, the house where I lived, the property where I lived, was a fruit tree orchard. So I moved into an orchard in 1989 that had some of the leftover trees. In fact, I still have two citrus trees on my property that were planted in the 1920s, and they're still producing fruit every year. It's amazing how that works. Wow, 100 years of that. (laughs) Right? Cool. Yeah. And I I have done a lot of work on the soil. I'm a big proponent of if you're going to have happy, healthy, good-for-you food, you need to have healthy soil. And when I arrived here 32 years ago, the soil was good. It wasn't great. There was some organic matter. In fact, that's a big problem we run into here in the desert is there's less than 1% organic matter in the soil. Wow. So our, our job is to get organic matter added to the soil. And I do that. Uh, originally, I did a note or I did a till um, where I, you know, tilled up the soil, added in organic matter. But since then, I don't till my soil. The only time that I dig in my yard is 
when I'm digging out weeds or harvesting something. The rest of the time, I let the soil be. So what I'm doing every year is I'm adding two, two to three inches of organic matter on top. A lot of that organic matter comes from my composting system here at the Urban Farm. And so I don't have to bring in a whole lot of stuff from outside, which is nice. And what happens over the years is the front garden beds got higher and higher and higher. They kept, you know, they kept raising because I kept adding organic matter. So about, about seven years ago, I dug the beds so that they dropped six inches. Basically, I, I took the topsoil off of the beds and took dirt out from underneath them. And what I found when I was, and there was a very specific reason I needed to do that. And um, what I found was that I had about 18 inches of really nice organically grown topsoil that had been created from the dirt, you know, and then there was the underlying dirt. And that is one of the big things that I've seen here at the Urban Farm over the years is how the soil has changed from, in some cases, dirt, which is one component of healthy soil, to this amazing complex web of life and organic matter and, you know, that grows amazing food. I'd like to say a little about the parallels of what you just said and what we do here at Crimpy to bring people, you know, back up to 7,200 feet. My greenhouse, Phoenix, has a 30% organic matter. Uh, unfortunately, wow. it's a little high. I actually had to scrub out some of that uh, nitrogen with wood chips and right. uh, green manures. But outside, uh, in the last 30 years, um, our our topsoil is at least 20, 10% organic matter. I have about wow. 6 to 8 inches of black humus worm castings on top of some clay soil that goes down to bedrock pretty soon because we're sitting on a sandstone limbs. Oh, right. Um, yeah. So, but, but we've been, over the years, we've hauled in thousands of leaves, bags of leaves and wood chips and, and we're an acre. So we still need to haul in things, but we also have lots of nitrogen fixing trees that we chop and drop. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's a dozen ones that, we interplant with our food forest. That's Siberian pea shrub is our main one. And then we, you know, we coppice that all the time and use that as uh, animal food. And mm-hmm. um, uh, so it's woody mulch and leaf mulch. The leaves of a nitrogen-fixing tree are very small. They break down very fast. So you have a fast release, and then you have the slow release of the, of the branch right. itself. And then we also basically worm farm the whole acre and mycelium farming. So it's not just the mulch, it's the other, you know, soil food web that breaks everything down. And you have to have moisture. You have to have enough moisture for all of those things to work because you know that mushrooms don't come around until you've got a, you know, you get a rainstorm, then you get a flush. But if you keep that moisture in your mulch, you're going to have mycelium. And if you pick up my first couple of three inches, you're going to see white you're going to see cakes of white. So that's the mycelium. Mm-hmm. It's not always edible right. stuff, but it's part of that soil food web. So that's kind of where I'm, you know, 
bringing you up to date of we do something similar, and almost all permaculture farms do this as their oh, standard yeah. way of well, you have to. Jerome, how many times do you get people that ask you, oh, my gosh, I have mushrooms growing in my yard. How do I kill them? <laughs> right. No, I haven't heard that one, but, um, you know, they're afraid of Oh, them. good. I uh, get that all the time. Yeah, well, you know, the mushrooms that we have up on our up on our swales are amazing. I When I go on hikes, I take some dried fruit with me, or I take pockets of fruit from my food forest. I eat it on the way. I have a plastic bag. On the way down, I pick up meadow mushrooms and any mushroom I can find. And when I get down and walk through my, my swale area down to my house, I'm sprinkling these uh-huh. mushrooms everywhere. And so I have oh, that, nice. know, mushrooms coming up after a flush. And so that's this whole business of, you know, working with mycelium. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's really important. Yeah, big time. I um, am starting to wonder a little bit. Um, I know Jerome has some chickens and rabbits, and I, I know some permaculture operations will utilize aquaculture. Um, Greg, mm-hmm. is that something? Are you, do you have any animal life like that on your property? Or I also imagine there might be some barriers um, with city zoning around that. There is, there is a little bit. But for everything that I keep here on the property, there's not. Uh, we're allowed to have up to 20 hens on the property. We okay. currently have 13 hens, laying hens. There are pets. Uh, and going back to permaculture and stacking functions, uh, our chickens, um, they provide uh, eggs. They provide poop for uh, manure, for fertilizing. They eat bugs, they eat weeds, they turn our compost for us. They're great diggers. So uh, that in permaculture, we call that stacking functions. Uh, I have a, a, a large worm bin, because when you think about it, worms are, you know, in the animal sphere that's actually breaking down, as Jerome mentioned. They're worm farming their entire property there. And I do a little bit with aquaculture, but I stopped eating fish about 15 years ago, so I don't raise fish for food. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they're in a aquaponics system that I have here on the property, a small, very small aquaponics system. Because, you know, I started with fish when I was nine years old. And I'm 60 now, so I didn't want to, uh, I, didn't, I didn't really want to get totally away from fish, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um well, I'd love to get in a little bit into sort of some philosophy here, um, so to speak. And I know you've said before that discovering where your food comes from and learning how to grow your own um, is one of the most important things that people can be doing right now. So can you talk a little about yeah. that? Absolutely. The, we have a, an amazing food system on this planet. It's the industrial food system, and it's amazing for a couple of reasons, and it's not amazing for a bunch more. So let's start (laughs) with the reasons that our industrial food system is amazing. And the biggest one is is that it gets food to people, 330 million in the United States, every day. We have this food manufacturing and delivery system in this country that gets food to people. It's not necessarily healthy food. Uh, but it's food, and it gets, you know, food in people's stomachs. On the other side of that coin is we have only a three-day supply of food 
in any in any urban area in the country, really in the world. This has been this is they've done research on this. This is a proven uh, data point, and I actually say that we have a three-hour supply of food because what happens is, and we've seen this twice in the past year. We saw it when the pandemic hit, and we saw it when the storms were in Texas last month. And what happens is, is that once there is even a, a whisper of that there's going to be food shortages, the food disappears off of the shelves. And so that is, this is a big reason I do what I do is uh, teaching people how to grow their own food because I believe that the solution to our global food problem is growing our own and growing it in cities, growing it where it's needed. And um, I started about 15 years ago, I started the 10,000 Urban Farms program. About eight years ago, I started uh, uh, some, something similar, 10,000 seed banks in people's freezers in Phoenix. So I'm doing a lot of that work to address the the long-term importance of having food systems in place in our urban areas to feed us. And um, I happen to think that it's our, our current food system is tenuous enough that in the next 10, 20 years, we could see drastic shortages. And if everybody had food growing in their yard, it would be much less of an issue. Any fruit trees that you're going to plant, any uh, wild foods you're going to harvest, you know, is going to be, you know, a buffer, you know. And we're going to, we have the same problem here. We have, you know, we've had several big snowstorms where, uh, uh-huh. you know, the grocery, you know, the trucks couldn't get in and the shelves yeah. were empty. Um, we've actually had a fairly good resurgence in local farmers now, Um you know, one of our counties here, Pitkin County, has, has opened up a lot of open space land. So in the last 10 years, we have at least a dozen young farmers are getting access to local land and um, getting mm-hmm. uh, support from slow money to, um, to put infrastructure on and to buy equipment. And so it's not, not there yet. Um, I, I think that every town and every town, every town should have its 40-acre farm. And it's right. not a difficult thing. You know, they have ice rings, they have swimming pools, they have parks, they have rec centers. It's a stretch to have a farm. And it, that farm could be a training center to teach gardeners and farmers and orchardists, you know, and permaculturists. But that seems to be not on the radar for the council. They do everything right. in their possible to, you know, let it, let it basically go to the, you know, the private sector. You know, I don't think farming should be left to the private sector because we know what that what that's done. Um, you know, it hasn't worked out that well. We do need to, you know, we need to figure out how we can help the young farmers. You know, there's no way to get land in this valley unless, it, you know, you can lease it from the county, you know, for yeah, a, a little you, bit. You, Jerome? Yeah, Jerome, though, you're talking about large farmland. What I'm talking about, what I'm proposing, is that everybody that has a yard grow their own food. Grow some exactly. food, grow extras, so that all of a sudden what we have in a, in a Phoenix metropolitan area of 4.7 million people, we have 
you know, say there's a million homes here, we have a million gardens. So just as a last thought, I, you know, I've been studying permaculture and sustainability and regenerative design for my entire life. And in 1996, I wrote the following, and this is for your listeners to think about. It goes like this. Our downfall as a species is that we're arrogant enough to think we can control Mother Nature and stupid enough to think it's our job. <laughs> That's some great parting uh, food for thought, I think. So so thank you thank for you. that. And, and thank you for being with us here today telephonically um, and giving our, our Colorado residents a, a little picture into um, a third of a, an amazing acre in Phoenix, Arizona. <laughs> Yay. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Greg. That wraps up Living Permaculture today. Stay tuned to KDNK, and thank you for listening. My grandson, remember in the days that are to come, one thing I will tell you before my life on earth is done. Don't let time be only money Don't let machines make you a slave And taste the milk and honey Before all the streets are paved Yeah, there's more to time than money More to treasure than to save Taste the milk and honey Before all the streets Hey